0: Hi ladies, you're listening to The Goodness Podcast. My name is Noor Tahini. I'm the co-founder of Goodness, and I'll be your host today. Goodness was launched in 2018 as a platform dedicated to tackling topics surrounding women's health in a real and honest way. And we're continuing on that mission with the launch of this podcast series, which will feature real women and real stories from the Middle East. My guest on the podcast today is Anum Bashir, a fashion insider and the woman behind the desert mannequin platform. Anum's experience in the fashion industry spans all the way from content creation, to brand consultant, to buyer and fashion director, to creative director of Georgian brand and duo. Most recently, she started representing Sonam Kapoor and managing her partnerships in the MENA region. On today's episode, we're discussing her journey, as well as how she found her way and voice in a notoriously difficult industry. Hey
1: Anum! Hi Noor. How are you? I'm good. I'm still sitting on my bed like I have been for the last 10 days.
0: Well, it's 1 p.m. <laughs>
1: it's 1 p.m. And I'm like, this. you know, the bed has now found a new purpose in life as my home office.
0: So your podcasting studio, my as well.
1: podcasting studio, my home office. It's where I yeah. do some of my best thinking. <laughs> well, I'm so happy
0: to have you on the podcast. Well, my first ever podcast experience was actually on your podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. Which was wonderful, and it was yeah. to this day still one of the most kind of interacted and listened to episodes. So I'm very grateful for that. So thank you.
0: So, um, how have you been? How's the quarantine treating you?
1: You know, uh, it's really funny because I posted about this a few days ago, and I've been very active on social media simply because, like, I'm, I am, I am still trying to put out content, and I am still trying to connect with my audience in whichever way I see fit, but. Someone had um, kind of showcased or highlighted this this part of our life in a very um, in a very telling way. Where three or four days a week, I'm like, it's fine. This is so like we should count our blessings, you know. This is the first time in a decade that I'm actually able to slow down and like touch wood. Thank God. Like there's no, you know imminent doom on the horizon for, for and I as a couple, like we're financially stable. We've really, you know, planned for a rainy day. So like, I, I feel very, very grounded and very sane and very blessed. And it's very calming. And then day four hits and then I'm like, holy shit, like, you know, when am I ever going to work again? Like, this is scary. You know, what does this mean for the economy? And I start reading all these doom and gloom articles on like Bloomberg or BOF or the New York Times um, because Wakast loves consuming and absorbing New York Times content, which a lot of times can be quite, uh, it's quite heavy handed, you know, it can be quite heavy handed. So I I am going through the motions and I, I feel even though that, you know, I tend to be my own toughest critic, I do feel like I've done quite well for myself in quarantine, given that, you know, I do suffer from like, chronic anxiety, and I do suffer from depression. And I I, ha- I have a tendency to be very like, the glass is perennially half empty, you know, mm. <laughs> I, I always, that's like my kind of de facto response to everything in life. Whereas now I'm like, This is great. Like you've been working like a dog for a decade. This is allowing you and not just you. It's the world. You are not alone in this slowdown, you know? It's it's the world has been forced to reevaluate, reprogram, reanalyze the way in which we were going about conducting ourselves, our businesses, our relationships. And so I feel like, yeah, I wanna be part of that majority. The majority that are like, it's okay to slow down, it's okay to pause, it's okay to, you know, just sink into life and and be at home and enjoy your time on your couch and not have to worry about a paycheck but then it just creeps up on you like i'm not going to lie when you work for yourself you know every day you don't work is every day you don't get paid and mm-hmm. yeah so it's a it's an oscillating movement between everything will be fine to WTF
0: let's all panic <laughs> yeah let's all yeah. panic
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah how long have you been in the fashion industry for
1: So I kind of, like, tiptoed into fashion about, I would say, five, six years ago. I was still very much working a nine-to-five at Qatar museums, and I loved, I loved, absolutely, like, loved my time there. It was so formative. You know, I started a full-time, proper, career-driven job at the age of 25. I had just gotten married. I had a fresh, like master's degree in my hand and I knew I wanted to charter and pave a way within the creative industry I just didn't know what it would be and how it would be Mm -hmm. because I wasn't formally trained as a stylist or a curator or you know I didn't go to school for a very formal role within the art or the fashion space I had a degree in writing I had a degree in entrepreneurial strategy I went to an amazing business school so I had the tools to figure it out and that's what I did I, you know, I was in New York right after I graduated in 2010, 2009, 2010. I was in New York City for like two years, came back to Doha, got married. And then it just so happened. It was quite serendipitous that Wakas and I were both offered really, really wonderful like starting positions at Qatar museums. And we, I mean, to say that we flourished and grew is such an understatement and it sounds cliched, Mm. but, you know, you could be 24, 25, being someone's assistant, doing coffee runs, you know, organizing meetings and like doing some very low, low grade admin stuff, or you could actually be in the thick of change and understand how policies are made and how steering committees are put together and institutions are, you know, kind of, there's an inception of an institution and seeing it come to life, like in the case of like the national museum or the fire station house of residency, where I worked for about three years So I remember not to like digress, but I remember being in the fashion or in the art world, sorry, and going to these amazing openings and meeting amazing people and building like a network for myself and realizing I could totally leverage this and find a way to tiptoe into fashion, even if it was just for fun. And it wouldn't be a job, it would just be something that I toy around with and have fun with. And it then occurred to me, because around 2012, 2013 I started reading flash fashion blogs, like some very well-reputed fashion blogs, you know, whether it was Man Repeller or what Brian Boy was doing, or like there was just a ton of them. I, I really <laughs> liked Margaret Zhang's take on fashion. So I was reading about all of these people kind of like the OGs, so to speak. And um, I was like, this is cool. Like maybe I could do this. You know, I have a really a well-equipped toolbox uh, via the art world and, you know, it's, it's such an interesting space to explore yourself sartorially because, you know, if you, you go to a, a gallery opening, you can wear something quirky and cool and it, it, no one really looks at you with a side eye. So the art world is a great place to actually explore yourself, sartorially speaking. And I was like, let me just launch a blog and, you know, see where this could potentially go. It could be very a very interesting, like, after hours hobby that I take up. And that's exactly what it was. Desert Mannequin was was born as a hobby. It I had no idea that this could actually turn into a full-fledged business mm-hmm. with like a consulting arm and a podcasting arm and a clothing line arm and you know obviously the influencer side is is still very much there and very much alive but yeah so like 2000 and I want to say like 15 is when it when I really took it seriously. I'm like okay, I have a blog I'm going to launch a Tumblr page and this is going to be the best thing that ever happened. And I started like chronicling personal style, but I always was also very, very cognizant of the fact that I didn't want it to be a destination that just promoted luxury fashion because we have enough of that in our region. And, you know, obviously the purchasing power and the affluence of the Middle East is, is no one's, it's not unbeknownst to anyone. So Mm -hmm. I didn't want to just regurgitate a bunch of like Chanel content or Prada content or Valentino content, which is great. I mean, they're amazing brands. And to this day, I'm still like giddy if I can like afford a bag from them or whatever. But it, for me, it was more about how can I have my finger on the pulse when it comes to what's new and interesting in fashion, you know, like what are the cool kids and the insiders and, where's the cults, what, what's what's steering the cults? So that's when I like discovered brands like Tesla Mandelovich and Natalie Trad. And, you know, I, I started, I discovered, or I came across, I didn't discover her. She's an amazing designer, but I like came across Sandra Mansour's work Um, mm-hmm. early, early days, like six, seven years ago. And a lot of it was regional, like Rimami. You know, I, st- I started like, dappling a lot into fine jewelry like I came across Noor Faris, whose work I think is amazing Sabine Getty Fernando George like it I mean the list goes on and on and I wanted to become like a a respected or have like host a, a respected URL for where people would come to be like what's catching her eye you know that was yeah. that was important to me
0: I think you've done a really good job in offering an, a different or maybe a fresh Perspective or take on fashion in the region, because first of all, like you said, you do approach everything with a very artistic background or like a sort of a curator's eye. Yeah, and it's it's not so much what's trending, but very much like what's a cool structure and what's a cool like pattern or print. Or I I notice that from the photos and the and the content that you put out. But also, I've always come to you for like, what are the cool brands that I need to know about? What are the under the radar like? smaller players creating and you've always been such a great resource for that
1: it's really important for me in fact before we started um recording today i was researching minju kim who is a korean designer who won next in fashion and part of her winning this um, initiative was she gets to um, launch a capsule collection on a and she's just so talented and i'm like i need to i need to find a way to like own a piece of Minju Kim, because I love her story. I love that I watched the show. And, you know, above and beyond all, I really adore her approach to very feminine pattern cutting. And she has such a, a very endearing way of approaching fashion design. And, you know, I found it's funny like when you watch you know you know they always say like you're more inclined to want to own a brand or own a piece from a house if you have a person you feel like you have a personal relationship with the designer Mm -hmm. or you know their story and I think that holds true for anything but having watched her one next in fashion the journey she took and just like watching her cry and just she's just so uninhibited and just so sweet and endearing I'm like you know I like this person this is someone who I would love to support and get behind so right before we started recording I was like you know, how can I own this minju Kim green emerald silk taffeta dress? It's so beautiful. But yeah, I, I don't, I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of people now today in the industry that are doing some really interesting things from a blogging or influencer point of view. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of members of my cohort here, even based in the Middle East have such an amazing eye and they shoot amazing content um, and have great style. But I'm always trying to like, hopefully, hopefully, I, I'm not sure if I'm, you know, completely successful at it, but I'm hopefully trying to still be that kind of Instagram handle that you go to if you want to discover a cool brand that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe hasn't been so readily acknowledged or celebrated within the Middle East.
0: Mm, And maybe not so readily available to shop here either. Yeah, Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: So you launched the blog in, what did you say, 2013?
1: Yeah, it's like it's like four. It was like thirteen, fourteen, but it was like a Tumblr page, and
0: yeah, it yeah. was still like
1: a. I mean, I consider it a blog. I was like so proud of it, like the day it launched. It had such cheesy content, but I'm like, I'm just so proud that I, I set my mind to something and I did it. And like I remember, oh my god, the first outfit I posted was so god awful. It was like a, a, this kind of like coordinated set from Mango, and I was wearing these silver Zara gladiator shoes, which I still own by the way. (laughs) But yeah, it was, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to sit here and nitpick myself till the cows come home, I'm never going to put anything out there. Let me just jump on it, put it out there. Even the name, like Desert Mannequin. I'm like, I'm either going to love this 10 years from now, or just, it's just going to make me gag. But I just had all these.
0: How do you feel about it?
1: I mean, I think it's, I think it's recognizable. I think people, like, people call me, like, dear dessert or dear desert. It's so funny. Like, people don't know my name is Unum, But I don't know. I think it's weathered fairly well. I might think differently a month from now or a year from now. But it was, like, all these post-its just, like, crowning the screen of my laptop. And there were all these words that I associate with. And I didn't want my blog to be called, like, unum's closet or whatever or something like Mm -hmm. super cliched like that i always gravitated towards you know blog names that were just like really quirky like the blonde salad or second skin or man repeller or Mm -hmm. shine by three like those just sounded so cool i'm like that's what i want to be known as like an alias is kind of cool to have and i saw one posted that said desert because where i live and i was born and i grew up and then i saw another one said matt i'm like you know what Effort. I'm just gonna take these two, marry them together, and that'll be my brand. And if people don't like it, well, whatever.
0: And how did you? So you launched your blog, you launched your your yeah. blog or Tumblr page, etc. And you were d- doing that for a while while you st- you were still working in the art world. Yeah. How did you get your foot through the fashion door?
1: So I yeah. So I you know was very much committed to my nine to five at the museums, which I held that job until I moved her to Dubai. So I never actually quit the museum space, the art space. I loved it. It was amazing. I loved my colleagues. You know, I was so endlessly grateful for the opportunities given to me there. But my boss at the time, uh, Sheikha Halal Khalifa, who basically spearheaded the fire station, she was like the head of the fire station, which is an artist in residency program. She knew I had a blog and she knew I was very, very passionate about fashion. And she encouraged me to bring fashion within the residency space she's like you know if you want to do pop-ups here if you want to bring designers if you want to hold talks you have like my full blessing and what I loved about my job um, at the museum was to a certain extent I was given carte blanche in terms of like how programming would carry itself out like how can we Make this a very interdisciplinary space beyond just like photography and sculpture and you know like traditional mediums of mm-hmm. of artistic practice, which I argue fashion is very much a part of that. So I remember like Ardem was visiting Qatar and I was asked to moderate that talk and it was it was very very successful and it was very well received and it was a full house and I felt so comfortable in that space of you know, I like public speaking, like I enjoy it. I, I mean, I feel shy and nervous and anxious, just like the next person. But I feel like once you kind of take yourself out onto the proverbial open road, and you know how you feel about certain things, and you know, how to string your thoughts together and hopefully be somewhat articulate at it, it's actually such an, such an amazing space to be in, like public speaking or moderating or panels or what, whatever, you know, and I, those were my, like, that was my first encounter with, like, fashion, fashion, like, where I was moderating Erdem's talk and got to know him, and um, also, like, you know, doing these massive retrospectives or these openings, like Damien Hurst or Saigo Shang or Murakami. The Qatar museums would actually bring out some very heavyweight fashion personalities to their opening nights. So, mm-hmm. like, I got to meet Naomi Campbell through that, Franca Sotsani, um, Maria Grazia Chirui when she was still at Dior. Oh, sorry, sorry, Valentino. So I got to meet all these amazing people, Muchia, Riccardo Tichy when he was at uh, Givenchy. So I got to meet these amazing, amazing people in a much, I would say well, it was a much more uh, accommodating environment. You know, it wasn't a fashion space, So to them, I wasn't like some like fashion fan approaching them. They're like, okay, this is someone in the art space that wants to have a conversation with. I guess the context was just very different, you know? Yeah. So that's when I realized like, this is amazing. I'm actually finding that middle portion of the Venn diagram where art meets fashion. And it's a much more effortless way of building a network. And so at the fire station, again, going back to where I was stationed, um Sheikh Ahala was like, let's do this and let's do a pop-up and let's bring all these amazing designers and, you know, you can manage it. And, you know, I know you have the blog and I-, I never want to take away from that because that's the purpose of why you're here. And, you know, I would use, I had like 30 or 40 days of annual leave built into my contract. So I would use my leave to Go to fashion weeks and start networking. And I was invited to be the fashion director of a major multi brand store in Qatar. So I did that like part time. So basically, I'm like a walking, talking example of throw as many opportunities at me and let's see what sticks. You know, I didn't want to say no because when you're so young and people are interested to know who you are or what you're doing or collaborate. You don't say no, you just you you just kind of hop on that bandwagon and give it your all and have faith that you can do the job exceedingly well and then just just learn from everything. So that's what I did between 20, 25 and 30. That's I just I hustled my my posterior off.
0: (laughs) What was the fashion industry like back then when you joined it? Did you find it intimidating? Did you find it welcoming?
1: So yeah, actually I found the industry to be extremely intimidating when I first kind of stepped foot into it. I didn't know anyone per se um, when I traveled and it was, it was quite lonely and and scary. And, you know, everyone seems to have this like backstory and everyone knows everyone. And it's just, it can be quite, um, quite clicky, obviously it's fashion Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's notoriously known for being a, a bit of a playground for like mean girls or whatever you know I just I don't want to I don't want to venture down the rabbit hole of cliches but it was tough and it wasn't always easy and you do feel very judged and you know I didn't I I didn't come from this like big famous powerful family where people would want to meet me and and you know possibly get something out of me and I, I felt like there was a lot of you know, I I I don't know. It's it's really hard to um, to put into words, but like, and I I think it can be quite controversial to use phrases like social climbing or opportunist mm. or you know whatever. But we all know what it's like, and sometimes we just don't want to say it. But it's just it's it can be quite a a mean girls club, and you know you would. I remember times where I would go to like. A presentation or a show and I would muster up the strength to introduce myself to someone I had really really admired from afar and that person was definitely less than kind or just kind of gave you the up and down like what mm-hmm. is she wearing and it sounds so cliched and so things you see in movies or but I think they're in movies for a reason because it's true yeah. you
0: know. How did you deal with that? How did you deal with being in an industry that literally puts you under a microscope and scrutinizes everything you say, do, wear? I mean, I didn't. I would just come back to my hotel room
1: and cry to my husband on the phone. Like, you <laughs> know, I, I to, to be quite frank, I had gotten to meet a lot of people, but there's a very, very big difference between meeting and knowing and feeling comfortable with and, you know, considering someone a friend. And I even think like the gamut between acquaintance and friendship is also so far and vast. And I, didn't really have friends in the industry until like it took me a couple of seasons where when I started you know traveling to Paris or New York like for example I always say like some of my most my some of my fondest memories of fashion week are like when Natalie Trad would be there showing showcasing her collections. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she became like such a security blanket for me, like when we would go out for dinners, and we wanted to meet people or go for events. It's like, we kind of had each other's back, which I'm so, so grateful for to this day. And, you know, I I started, eventually, I had my own PR, and I became such good friends with Katrina. And she was, she's so unlike anyone in the industry, just like very soft natured,
0: but also, Katrina, who, is, who was your PR, just for listeners who are not yeah, familiar Yeah, so
1: Katrina, you. well, now McPherson, but, you know, me, Judd, had kind of stumbled uh, across uh, my Instagram and Desert Mannequin years and years ago, and I was still, like, very much a tadpole in the industry, and she's like, I think you have a very interesting look and style and aesthetic and point of view, and I think she was just very taken by the fact that I had, a, like, also a very strong opinion about things. Mm -hmm. And for me, fashion isn't like, I would never say like, oh my God, it's like my childhood dream to like be able to like read a Vogue or whatever. I just, I was also quite critical in a way. And she was like, yeah, I feel the same way. And it's actually, it's, it's quite a toxic industry, but it's like this weird masochistic love-hate relationship that you have (laughs) with this industry where you so desperately try to exit it at times. But then you're like, oh, it's also the thing that makes me feel the most alive, damn it. You know, it's like it's such a, it's almost like a marriage at times, but you know, I eventually, as seasons passed, I started to form a bit of a core, which I was very, very grateful for, because these were the girls that I could meet up with after a show, or go to lunch with, or go to an event with, and I just didn't feel alone, and I always realized, like, how does everyone know everyone? How does everyone have a wing woman? Like, how? Am I not going to some kind of, like, meet and greet or convention like am I like is there like an alternate universe where everyone's bff with each other and I'm just like this loner on like the steps of the school but then I just realized it's also like a very fabricated industry you know a lot of it is it's, I think I think nine-tenths of it is about appearance and you either learn to play that game and you know sing along or or you don't and but you exit. but with that being said I refused to give in like all the way because I knew if I gave in all the way, it just wouldn't be me anymore. And that's not an injustice I could do myself or my family or my husband who are extremely rooted down to earth. I mean, you know, wacky, like he just could not be further from this world. So my family and my very close friends and my husband were like that anchor point that still very much kept me in the realm of normalcy it's like Stranger Things. You know how there's an upside down?
0: No, I don't watch TV shows. No, you know about me. I'm, I'm behind on every Oh TV my God, but Stranger Things. Okay, that was
1: a brilliant analogy and I'm so sad it's lost on you. <laughs> but there's like these two worlds and there's a lot of evil that happens on the other side. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's like, the, it's called the upside down. I'm like, sometimes fashion can be the upside down. But also I think more so now in the recent future or in the recent past, I should say, not future. I think people have become more, to a certain extent, more self aware. And mm-hmm. I think this mean girls thing just it can only take you so far. I think we're becoming a lot more emotionally responsible, I should say. Like, you know, people are very much powered by this idea of like sustainability and like it's kindness goes a lot further and just this more co- working as a collective and just being more supportive.
0: I don't know. Do you feel that Do you feel that in the Middle East? Do you feel that in the past um, sort of eight, seven, seven seven years or so, six or seven years that you've been in the industry to a, to a varying degree? So in the beginning, it was just running your platform in Qatar and, and hosting designers and hosting events, all the way to leaving your job in Qatar, moving to Dubai, or sorry, moving to Dubai, then leaving your job, um, and then fully immersing yourself in in fashion where you were organizing trunk shows and you're consulting for brands and you're writing, you, you wrote for uh, the Man Repeller as well, right? Yeah.
1: So, um, throughout 2019, I, up until like, yeah, pretty much throughout 2019 I was contributing to Man Repeller, but it's, it was amazing. Like I loved writing stories for them because they have such a different take and angle and Mm -hmm. such a different voice that they adopt within the industry and a highly recognizable one at that. And so for me, it just, Again, like, irrespective of who you're writing for, who you're partnering with, or who, you know, who you can count as, like, put into your, like, black book of names, just the sheer idea of being invited into a circle in and of itself is so reassuring. It's so uplifting when it comes to your self-esteem. It doesn't matter who it is or where it is. Like, to me, I would take up any opportunity to contribute to any platform because it's like and it's like an implicit invitation actually it's an explicit invitation Mm -hmm, into mm -hmm. someone's Mm -hmm. like inner circle you know and that sense of belonging that sense of being alike is is kind of like a pat on the back which we all need every now and then because I am someone who is constantly plagued with self-doubt, nor like constantly. Mm. I think I'm like in the toilet, like doubting myself all the time. You know, it's like, did I do this right? Do I look right? Does this person like me? It's it's just something that I've battled since I was a child. And I don't think, I've. it's taken my 30s to realize that that's not a bad thing. It's not quote-unquote pathetic or quote-unquote needy. It's just the way I am, but it also makes me very sensitive towards other people and, it i think it makes me very empathetic as a person and it makes me softer and kinder but it's also just i realize like it took therapy for me to realize it's it's also not a healthy way to survive if you're just constantly it's feeling debilitated mm. so i think like growing there is something to be said about people that are able to have a strong backbone and you know they have these different faces and i and i understand that that's that's very much a it's, i think it's a survival instinct you
0: know you mentioned that you had gone to therapy and that that helped you figure out that aspect of yourself. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also something that is it's very powerful when you're aware mm-hmm. of of that, or of, of the way that you function, of what makes you tick. And then you can p- maybe use it to your advantage or you could be aware of when it could, could be a disservice to you. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you, like what kind of work you did with your therapist and how if you were able to figure out where it started and also to see how it would affect you or how it was affecting you in your professional life.
1: I my god, I think for me to unravel that that ball of yarn, it's it's like it's been such a journey. I am so happy I went to therapy. You know, I, my issues stem from when I was old enough to have thought essentially, like, you know, you're, you're a a toddler growing into a child. And, you know, I was a witness to a a very difficult marriage via my parents, and I didn't have a lot of siblings. I had one sister. So, you know, it's like either get along with her or be extremely alone within the four walls Mm -hmm. of your home. So I am someone that absorbed a lot of the, that tumultuous environment. And it just, You know, it's really interesting. So memories and experiences can find a way to bury themselves within. It's like, you know how they say like muscle memory. There's like Mm -hmm. this whole notion of traumas can find themselves deep within your physical. Absolutely. And they won't find a way to manifest and come out and, you know, turn into something for even like decades on end. It was a goop episode that I was watching about how it's almost like performing an exorcism, right? Like when you mm-hmm. let go of trauma, whether it's emotional or physical. And I also really want to stress that, you know, people sometimes, they there's such a like, oh my God, response to like physical trauma or sexual abuse. And a lot of times there's a, a lot less of a, a visceral reaction to, if someone is recounting or explaining emotional or psychological trauma, which to me is just as debilitating to deal with. So, you know, I, I obviously was aware, but you're so defensive when, you know, you're being painted to be the bad guy. I was very aware that my childhood traumas and my adolescent traumas were coming back to haunt me and they were manifesting themselves in various ways. You know, I would ridiculous fights with my husband I always had a a bit of a rocky relationship with my sister um, you know my mom and I my mom I was I always found my mom to be like my toughest critic she was not a safe space for me to go to I couldn't be my truest self like also like when you're a brown South Asian kid you're always being measured up to these ridiculous bloody yardsticks of like performance you know like you have to straight A's in school and get married at this time and have kids at this time and own a house by this time it's like why are we living our lives as a series of just like acts and performances and you get freaking tired of it. So it took, it took therapy like over a year of therapy for me to realize that not everyone's always the bad guy. You know, you just sit there and you lick your wounds and you're like, Oh, poor Mm -hmm. you, boohoo. Like no one understands you. And you know, a large, a large part of it can be true. Yes. You can in fact feel very misunderstood. It can feel like at times when you're trying to, battle something out emotionally with someone that you feel like no one's understanding you. But I think it's very important to shelve yourself and your experiences and, you know, kind of discharge your yourself from your own vantage point, like relieve yourself from that vantage point and just put yourself in the other person's shoes. And it sometimes takes a very big blowout for Mm. you to, to, go into your corner, sure, lick your wounds and, you know, self-heal, but then also realize that not everyone is out to get you. And this is something that I have suffered so much from, Noor. Like, you know, you just feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. It's like, Mm -hmm. get over yourself. You know, you're not actually that important in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, there are people that love you. And I don't know, it's, you know, my therapist really helped me unpack a lot of that childhood baggage a lot of that childhood trauma and repackage it in a way that allowed me to become a more effective communicator and as a result' I've become a bit more happy like it's okay if it's okay if someone doesn't agree with you on everything it's okay if someone judges you it's it's fine I, I also think it's just the beauty of getting older you get older you get wiser, wiser yeah you know, again it's it's these clichés or like whatever but it's it's true they stem from from some very poignant truths that you get older we have like look at look at how much perspective we've been able to garner through covid-19
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know it's yeah. like again like am i going to sit there and worry about i don't know something frivolous within a space that i already argue is quite frivolous the fashion world you know it's like yeah. look at the bigger picture it'll be fine like
0: Has it made you question a lot of things? Oh,
1: yeah. (laughs) I think there's more questions (laughs) than there are answers. (laughs) It's like, we're not doing this right. Even like, you know, like I'm at the helm of my own brand, like a ready to wear brand that's based in Georgia and Duo. And it's really taken this crisis to like light a fire under our butts and be like, we don't want to be part of the problem anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. we want to be part of the solution.
0: Yeah, you don't want to be churning out a million collections each year. No,
1: you don't want to be, you know, as it is, we're such a small brand. We were churning out two collections, right? But the two collections needed to be dropped four times a year. And if I can be completely transparent, like we're tired of chasing retailers for payments. We're tired of the injustices that happen towards small brands because bigger, you know, stockists and retailers can take advantage of the underdog. We're we're tired Mm -hmm. of all that at its core. We want to produce beautiful clothes that are attainable, that people can enjoy for years to come. I don't want to see my dress at a thrift store or at a consignment store after someone wore it twice. That's not why I'm designing clothes. I actually want to see something that really lives in your wardrobe, that gets passed down, that has a proper shelf life. The fact that the vast majority of clothing inventory produced thus far, especially fast fashion, is sitting in a landfill, there is something very, Mm. very wrong with that picture. Very wrong with that picture.
0: Yeah. How do you approach sustainability in fashion? Is it something that's at the forefront of your mind, not only when you're designing, but also when it comes to the brands that you're working with and the sort of purchases you're making?
1: So from the get-go, I just want to put it out there that as of... Well, that's been like a year and a half, maybe, maybe two years. I have not purchased anything from a high street store, from a fast, fast fashion mm-hmm. brand. Um, so I'm super proud that I can say that I would say 99.5% of my wardrobe uh, c- comprises of slow fashion brands, vintage stuff, stuff that I bought off like the Real Real or Vestiaire Collective. You know, I get attacked. I have been attacked a lot in the past on social media for for bashing fast fashion brands. Like it's like, oh well, you work in the industry, you're very privileged, you can afford X, Y, Z, and if you can't afford it, then brands are showering you with gifts and whatnot. And I always have a very robust rebuttal to that attack because I've purchased brand new Manolo Blahniks for a hundred bucks from the real real, never mm. worn, never worn, guys. And that's almost the cost or the price of a shoe at Zara. You know what
0: is it like? Two ninety five,
1: three hundred. One hundred percent.
0: Yeah, the prices the prices at Zara are like two ninety something, three hundred. They can
1: go up to like five, six, five hundred, even for like a leather pair of boots or something. And you know, it's just I understand that a lot of the fast fashion brands are trying to undertake measures now that potentially shine a more sustainable light on them but it's not good enough if you have a conscious collection that comprises of like five to ten percent of your operation but you're still carrying it's like business as usual for 90 percent of your business that violates human you know human rights is abusing human capital
0: is they call it greenwashing right yeah that's
1: exactly what it is though you know and I think I'm also very sensitive to this because as a South Asian, I know that majority of the clothes are made in South Asia and China and whatnot. And I know that there's child labor involved. I know that there's unfair wage involved. I know that there's less than favorable working conditions involved. And I don't want to support that anymore. I don't think anyone needs to support that. Mm -hmm you know, it's not like Zara is being consumed by underprivileged people. So I should shut up because I'm a privileged person. It's being consumed by millennial and Gen Z yuppies, who I readily acknowledge maybe cannot afford a $4,000 Bottega bag. So you're seeing the knockoff version of it at Zara. You know, there's actually such cool indie brands that are literally just like sprouting up like mushroom on social media overnight. And they have such an interesting product and a really interesting take and it's for $200. Mm -hmm. So support those, like support your local. It's a very much like a mom and pop model. You know, I know that fashion brands aren't listed or aren't labeled as mom and pops, but that's essentially what it is.
0: Yeah. I think also it makes a difference, the volume at which you're buying. So if you're buying, like you said, if you're, if you're buying, um, a one high-quality, beautiful bag every six months or per year or whatever the volume you want to purchase at is, yeah. there's a difference between that and then if you want to be able to buy a mango bag every 10 days, mm-hmm. you know? And and that's also part of the problem, which is that it's just, it's just way consumer. too much consumption.
1: Yeah. And we just, Absolutely. we don't need to be consuming so much. Like, you know, I did something last week. I'm not sure if you saw on social media, but basically I sold a bunch of pieces from my wardrobe that that I feel like I had had a long and fruitful relationship with. And I was very happy to, you know, move, push that kind of product forward. And there were people that purchased and I donated the money to charity. And, you know, I feel like in that case, there was, you know, there was a number of different variables, me as the seller, um, a lovely young lady or a follower as the consumer, and then, you know, there was this, this third variable, which is like philanthropy or giving back. And I feel like in that model, everybody won, you know, I got to tidy up my space and own less. I love this whole, like, I'm so taken by Marie Kondo and like wabi Sabiing my home. I live in an apartment and I think in a way it's both a blessing and a curse to have less space, living space because, I mean, I wish I could have like a 5,000 square foot home and have this like dream walk-in closet um, that you see on like Architectural Digest. But the the huge pro of living in a, in a smaller space is it really allows you to edit your life in a way that's so healthy. And, you know, you see mm. this, like there's such a movement around and so much discussion and chatter around being responsible for less material stuff is actually so oddly freeing and is a very healthy way to live.
0: Yeah.
1: Because you're just not bogged down by material clutter.
0: So that's an interesting way to bring it back to our conversation and to sort of where I want to get to, which is how to stay true to yourself and how to find your voice and stay true to that mm-hmm. in the middle of what's happening, in the middle of an industry that is very much about telling you well it's not about that it's become about that Mm -hmm. fashion was very much about individual expression and now it's just become a copy paste situation although you could argue that it's swinging back the other way Mm -hmm. but what I wanted to say is if you're someone who is trying to reduce the number of things that she buys and the things number of things that she wears etc how do you approach fashion and how do you approach something even as basic as content creation so you're a big part of what you do is taking photos mm-hmm. putting your outfits out there there's pressure to always be putting new outfits out there but how do you how do you cope with that when you're you're not you're making an effort not to own that many pieces
1: so i actually don't care i think repetition is so cool i think there's something such a strong message to be conveyed with repurposing pieces in your wardrobe like You know, own something versatile, like a white button down shirt, wear it with shorts, wear it with pajamas, wear it with overalls, wear it with a skirt, you know, Mm -hmm. don't wear pants at all. I don't know. So like, it's I my biggest fear of movements is I or like these big grand statements and and observations is I, I really fear for them to just become trendy and sexy in the interim and then for them to be forgotten. Like human beings are inherently quite frivolous and forgetful we might be mindful post COVID-19 for the foreseeable future. And then after that, it's like, it, you know, this, this notion of greed really starts to creep in, creep in again. And it start, you know, it's like, it's almost like this weird drug and addiction where, you know, my grandmother didn't own 85 pairs of shoes. And she probably owned like 10. My mom probably owned 25, okay. 30. And here I am, you know, it's just like, blowing that statistic out of the water and that's not good that's just that's not right and you know yes sustainability is the talk of the town right now you know recycling and mindful consumption and you know BOF has pretty much like splattered their entire their website their social media with you know everything that's wrong with how the industry has been piloted thus far And that's great. And I really appreciate that content. I find it extremely formative. I find it, it's very educational, but it's one thing to put it out there and the practice of it is a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. I, on my social media, if I love something and I don't want to purchase it, you know, I'm still very fortunate to be able to call in samples for the sake of a story or for, you know, like if I'm running like a quarantine style, Um, series on Instagram right now, like what I'm wearing in quarantine, I don't need to own everything. You know, I can call in a sample, that sample can be returned, I'm owning less, I'm helping a business, like you know, further promoting a business, they their sample goes back into their archive or whatever. And then also just partnering with I try not to accept PR packages or gifts, if, if it's not something that, you know, speaks to my aesthetic or to my you know, just the, I'm trying to, I've like lost the word, but like, I'm not going to take on gifts that don't represent me or my brand or my DNA. Cause it's just, again, you're just hoarding and it's maybe something that someone else could have used. So I'm actually very, very fortunate to say that in the relationships that I've been able to cultivate thus far, brands have actually been very receptive to giving the end user the freedom to pick a product that represents them and that they could actually wear. You know, I love brands like um, uh, Sleeper and Mista and By Far and um, Road Resort. I love their dress. I love res- uh, Road dresses, but they've also always given me that freedom to choose. Like we'd love for you to pick something and and wear it. And we do the same thing at Enduo. Like when we do our very very small round of like gifting we want to give people that option to choose because you could throw a product at someone it's going to sit in their closet for six months and end up at a thrift store or consignment store and it's just it's just not how we want to do business like I said we just don't want to be part of the problem anymore Mm -hmm. so you know I always very respectfully decline uh, PR packages or gifts and I hope, I mean, I, I don't want to sound presumptuous, but I do hope that they understand where I'm coming from in not wanting to accept something that I feel could serve somebody else better than myself, yeah.
0: you know? So it seems what you're saying is it's, it's it was important for you to understand what your values are mm-hmm. and to live and work in accordance with those values.
1: Yeah. And I want to stress that even with a paycheck potentially tethered to a transaction, that in no way changes the way I approach it. So somebody could say, we would love to pay you for two posts. Can you wear this and this and this? And initially, three years ago, had you approached me with a very similar pro- proposition, I would have been like, it's a paycheck, it's money, find a way to make it your own and just, just you know, do mm. it. It's a job. What has changed? Um. Well, frankly speaking, I, I'm, you know touch with thank God a lot more financially comfortable now that I don't need to I don't view a paycheck like it's not like dangling a bone in front of a dog you know like I I don't need a thousand dollars I don't need two thousand dollars I would rather decline that and work on a twenty five thousand dollar project that ticks all my boxes which is it's you know helping me progress in the industry it's helping my brand grow it's has a very positive messaging behind it. You know, it's either artisanal or sustainably sourced. Like I just, I want the clothes that I wear and the brands that I work with and the projects that I undertake and the clients that I partner with to really have a very strong collective message of, we are part of the change. We are not part of the problem. We are mm-hmm. actually very much chartering a way forward that is putting humanity, the planet, the climate,
0: craftsmanship at the forefront. Do you feel like a big part of the change is also the fact that you are more comfortable with yourself, with your values and maybe with your voice uh, and saying no? I mean, I'm more
1: comfortable with my critics. And that's something I could never say like a few years ago. And, you know, like we talked about this, like you get older and you just have less of a I don't give a fuck, you know, approach to to your to your life, to your work, as long as you're doing right by yourself. And I think this is why I've always really gravitated to you as a person is because I still remember that one of the very first times that I met you, this was like years and years and years ago, you know, at Savoie Flair. Um, I think it was at a dinner, or an event where I met you and you met me with the same warmth and the same kindness and the same very like you had a very, very casual sensibility to you that I still see in you today as someone I consider like a very dear friend now. You know, like I know you well enough. We share stuff about our lives and I don't see a very drastically different Noor today than I did six or seven years ago when I first met you I don't even remember when I think I met you like because I was still in Qatar when I when I met you for the first time and of course we've grown and evolved and we learn from our mistakes but I think at your core if if there is like there is a kindness and a light and a desirability to do the right thing or to do right by yourself and and you know support your community at large Mm. i know these are very big and blanketed statements but i think it's true like it's true you know we are where we are and we are suffering as as a collective and our planet is shot to shit because of the poor decisions that we have made as as a race you know like industrialization has consumed humanity it's like destroyed the animal kingdom it's destroying like the rich are getting rich i always joke like during corona that during this whole corona pandemic people like jeff bezos get richer with every dump they take and you know there's kids in there's kids in india and kids in pakistan there's kids in syria iraq like lebanon that are getting poorer and poorer by the second and that's not okay there is enough wealth to go around And that's why last year I decided I am a socialist Democrat. Like, (laughs) there is really something to be said about everyone having enough or a little bit more than enough. But it should never get to the point where someone's having to dig through garbage to eat and somebody else doesn't know what to do with $120 billion, you know, like. Is that how
0: much he's worth now? He might be worth
1: even more. So like Damn. and it sucks because if you Google his wife, her Wikipedia page says she's worth like eighty seven billion. It's like source of wealth, divorce. Like that woman paid, man. Like that should not be her legacy. Yeah. And I've
0: also <laughs> read that she was a big part of him. Yeah getting the success that he did so Absolutely. it's a shame that it just says divorce there
1: yeah already. you know she like earned her stripes and you know like turned him from like a bobo to like one of the most sought after respected ceos in the world and it's not her fault that he messed around and had a wandering eye but my point is again like going back to disparity this increased disparity within you know our society is is very painful to watch it's very very painful to to witness and I think millennials and Gen Zs are more cognizant of this, and we need to, however, whatever we do, whether it's law or medicine or whether we're in the creative industry or architecture or whatever we choose to do with our lives, there needs to be this underlying thing that, or this like the fuel that pushes us forward, needs to be in the greater interest of the collective Mm -hmm. and not you know, just the individual. individual.
0: You had mentioned to me earlier that self-doubt has been a big part of your journey or Mm -hmm. understanding and overcoming your self-doubt. Do you think that to any extent it's slowed you down professionally?
1: Yeah, of course. Like, I'm just, I don't know. I'm not as like, put yourself out there and who cares what people say? Like, I'm just, I'm so not like that. Like I'm very, very sensitive to public opinion and I take every, comment or feedback or used to maybe less so now, but every comment and feedback, I really take it to heart because I'm like, these are people that are, that they're truly consuming the stuff that you put out there. And mind you, I still think that like, I'm not someone that puts like blast their life on social media. So I can only imagine how much worse some people have it, but
0: Mm.
1: yeah, I still have a lot of self doubt. Like,
0: how do you, how do you overcome that? Or how do you deal and live with it?
1: I don't know if you ever really overcome it, to be honest. I think you can mitigate it and I think you can remedy it to a certain extent. I think it's inherently, it's your either, you either have it or you don't. Like you inherently suffer from self-doubt and this like sense of insecurity. And I think a lot more people do suffer from it than lead on. Mm. But like the whole like looking someone from, you know, that very chronic condition of looking someone from head to toe and back up in, in the industry is, I think it, in some ways stems from like a lot of self-doubt and and it stems from a lot of insecurity. Like I don't look at someone from head to toe. I don't do it. I, I don't think I do it because I don't care what someone is wearing. It's just a lot more important for me to be like, is this someone who's going to appreciate the, verbal exchange or the verbal interaction that we have like I'm a very emotional person I love communicating with people like if this podcast is any indication I love freaking talking (laughs) um so for me like if I I don't know have a very candid discussion with you and you're like yawning or find ways to cut it short like that would really hurt me you know like I get so sensitive when it comes to that but um I don't know. I I don't think at least from where I'm sitting today, I don't think I'll ever be able to fully overcome self-doubt or, you know, questioning yourself and feeling like you're not pretty enough or skinny enough or whatever, but it's definitely been a work in progress. I do think I'm better or have improved today more so than like how much I suffered from it last year and the year before, but that's also just like the beauty of aging and yeah. Just being a bit more comfortable in your socks.
0: Do you think that the insecurities and the doubt that you suffer from are spe- very specific to the industry in which you work? So does the fashion industry sort of uh, magnify these insecurities or is it something that is very much part of your personality and would have exhibited itself in whichever industry you ended up in?
1: See, I've only worked in two industries, right? And they both mm-hmm. happen to be creative. So the first six years of my career where I was like, literally elbow deep within the art world and you know i actually had far less self doubt in the art world mm-hmm. i really felt like a cool kid i'm not going to lie like being in the art world i felt very knowledgeable very smart very welcome at the table i felt very respected you know it was nice like i i mean there's a there's a narcissist in all of us i i've always advocated that there's a narcissist in all of us Be- not because we're trying to be full of ourselves, but I think it's more of like a self-protection thing, you know, just like being like coddling yourself, licking your wounds, um, excusing your fallacy, your, uh, you know, just any, like whenever you fumble in life, like self, uh, self self-soothing is, it doesn't come from anything other than like a fear of being judged or a fear of like having made a mistake, but it was really nice. Like when I used to walk into work every day All of my colleagues were like, oh my God, you look so cool. Or like, you know, mashallah, she's so pretty or whatever. That felt really good. It felt very uplifting. I don't get that in the fashion world, or at least Mm. not as much as I did in the art world. But the art world was also a much more intimate cocoon. We were a team of seven or eight people. You know, the fashion industry, I felt like I, I, I voluntarily threw myself in the deep end. No one did it to me. You know, like my first fashion week was Paris, which arguably is like the the
0: biggest. The biggest, okay. the toughest,
1: yeah. you know, the most ruthless of, of the lot. It's a zoo. It totally is.
0: <sighs> I went for I I went to Paris Fashion Week five years in a row, something like that. Yeah, it's a zoo.
1: And you still have the hair on your head. <laughs> Congrats. I
0: hate it. I, it's I, horrible. I honestly, yeah. I am... Um, I cried a few times in Paris yeah. mostly from the blisters on my feet from not finding a taxi and being in heels but totally also I cried a few times from the fashion industry which well, the reason I asked you if it was specific to the industry is I I did I did find that fashion has a very specific way of preying on your insecurities Absolutely. whether it's the industry as a whole mm. or the people within it so mm. the messaging it's a uh, you got you have to you have to develop really thick skin it's mean it's just it's a mean it's a mean industry that's lost
1: focus it's no longer about talent it's no longer about creativity it's i i've always found fashion to be i don't know i think it's increasingly less of a meritocracy and more so about like it's like a giant hype machine right mm-hmm. it's like who you know and where you happen to be and what your fiscal net worth is and you know, everyone is just like feeding into this. Like I've always like jokingly, like, I, t- I say to my husband all the time, like, how are all these girls saying how much they love and miss each other? They've met each other three times in their life. Like, how do you love someone so much? And how is someone your sister from another mister? What, like those words and those phrases that get thrown around, like you only meet each other twice a year in this highly contrived and staged, you know, ecosystem how do you love someone so much? Like, yeah. I think the words like love and all that they get thrown around so much in this industry. It's like, it's a constant performance and a charade. And it just gets so freaking exhausting if you don't play along. And, you know, there's only, there's only so much fake I'm willing to do. Like, I get, you have to play the game and you just, I get it. I totally get it. I am just as guilty of it, you know, just being highly complicit, but there's a fine line that I draw. And if I had to choose a big fashion event versus having an intimate dinner with a really good friend on the same night, I think the Anam in her 20s would have gone for the former. And now in my 30s, being very comfortable in who I am and the work that I do, I'd be like, no, screw it. I'm totally having that dinner and catching up with my friend and Commiserating, you know, mm-hmm. over shared yeah. experiences and tears, and it's just to me that's a lot more in the long run. That'll be a lot more rewarding and 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 therapeutic and cathartic than showing up to an event where you know nobody and you feel like a piece of shit.
0: <laughs> can I say shit on your podcast? <laughs> yeah, you can say whatever you want on the podcast. <laughs> okay, just checking. <laughs> have you had any uh, guides or mentors along the way that have helped? you realize your priorities, your values, and, your, and sort of find your voice?
1: I mean, I, I permanently find guides in my very, very, very close circle of friends and family. And I, I also want to stress that some of my closest friends are not in the industry. Um, mm. But that in no way takes away from my friendships that are in the industry because a lot of the people that I have the closest relationships in with within the industry today are people that I met com- in a completely different context, outside the con- confines of "quote unquote" fashion. Yes, I have had some amazing mentors. You know, most of my mentors were in the fashions, in the sorry, in the art world. So, like I always say, like Hello was such an amazing, amazing supporter. You know, my husband has been such an incredible supporter. He's in the creative space as well. He works in the art and culture space, so he totally understood. Um, the challenges I faced, the, the 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 hiccups, the, the road bumps. And I always say, like, there would have been absolutely no success under this platform had it not been for Wakas because he shoots all my content and he gives me advice. And so, yeah, Wakas has been such an amazing support. I, I have had mentors. I have had a support system, like people. But it's just, I think I've also just, there's something to be said about being your own toughest critic as well. I'm very unforgiving towards myself, so I think that also powers me forward, and it it, it it's in a very correct manner. I don't want to be a sellout, but I was also raised in a very conservative and religious family, mm-hmm. so I think those like that childhood upbringing and that rearing it stays with you forever. Yeah, I think so. Like I, yeah. I'm very grounded in my, you know, my cultural, the, the, the pillars within my culture, the confines within which I, yeah.
0: I'm yeah, expected,
1: that's you know, to operate in. Like I'm not very religious, but I am very spiritual. Like I would never, like I've been approached to do like swimwear campaigns and lingerie campaigns. And it's just something I wouldn't do. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It just doesn't fit me and it's not in
0: line with who you are exactly
1: exactly I want to stress that like like there's there's nothing wrong with it it's just not in line with who I am or how I was raised
0: or your values etc exactly
1: and for me you know I also want to make sure that the people that I work with are they're not just colleagues like I think some of my best work that I've done have been with have been with like colleagues that I've had a very deep and meaningful friendship with you know like there's there's like a kinship there which makes work not work then it just makes a fun project you do together you know it's not yeah. it's not work it's it's collaboration it's like a meeting of the minds so yeah I I, I I hold everyone like if I respect you and I really care for you any opinion you throw my way it really does find its way into my aortic chambers I take it very seriously (laughs) and I really I I shelve a lot of that very good advice like because it might not be applicable today but it might be applicable next week or a year from now so yeah
0: just to wrap things up Anum yeah you have been in the industry for some time now you've sort of dipped your toes or actually worked in a lot of the different facets all the way to designing Mm -hmm. writing styling etc which you do on your own channel so you've you've experimented with a lot of different facets of the industry you've also been in the industry when it really had transformed so I think the last 10 years was when everything changed you know the, the influencers became a thing blogging was a thing consumer behavior changed, fast fast fashion was introduced, et cetera. And so you've had your own personal journey alongside the journey of the industry where you had to deal with self-doubt, you struggled with anxiety, you went to therapy, et cetera. So you've come a really long way in a really evolving industry. And what I want to end on is if you could go back and speak to the Anum that started Desert Mannequin, all those years ago, mm-hmm. what would be your main pieces of advice for her?
1: I would say try everything within the paraphrase that you'll allow yourself to operate within, which I did. But, you know, I do sometimes look back on some select lost opportunities, I guess, because I wasn't able to travel or I couldn't afford it or I just didn't want to spend the money. So there were. There were um, instances that came my way that um, sadly I had to like wash to the wayside. I remember like running back to my hotel room when I met someone or introduced myself to someone who I really admired, and it was just such a letdown. That that person is not worth crying. Oh my god, that's such a that's such a strong reaction, you know, to someone you don't even know but again like i always say like it's it's your 20s and that's okay that's like that is something you're meant to do when you're 10 years younger you're meant to learn from that and you're meant to i think every step or misstep or fortune or misfortune is is something that helps you inch closer to where you are today and if you if you're happy with where you are today then nothing should be viewed as a as a regret or as a you know, it should never be, a negative light shouldn't be cast on it. But I, yeah. you know, I just feel like, I don't know, like, am I regretful for the pace at which I worked at? No, I think it was great. I, I I, love the hustle. I really, really do. There's moments where, you know, I sit and I'm like, man, should I put myself more out there? Should I commoditize myself the way other influencers do? But again, that that's also not me. So it's fine. Like,
0: did you ever feel did you ever feel the pressure to do that
1: yes oh my god every day every day you know I see people that post like 50 stories a day and it's like they're literally sharing every detail of their life of their four walls of their family and you know it's it's something that makes me very anxious again I want to preface by saying that It's to each their own and different things work for different people. And we are all in this space and we all have that freedom to leverage whatever we want to, however big or small it might be to cast our print onto this industry. But I would like to see the industry go back to the basics where it was truly about the craft of making something or writing something or styling something rather than this very hungry content, hungry, you know, it's almost like people have become, uh, they're they're starring in their own show. It's very Mm -hmm. pop culture. And it's not, you know, I think the lines have been blurred significantly between creatives and creativity and like, reality tv or like but again like I also very much enjoy watching people cook like I've been consuming so much cooking content in quarantine but I'm like grateful for that so I find myself confused and a bit on the on the on the fence when it comes to like how much is it is it okay to share and
0: how much is too much how
1: much is too much or how much is too little or it's just it's you know I wish I had an answer to that but I don't because I'm you know, I also consume people's lives and it's been a big reason why I get through the day, but it's, I don't know. Is it okay? Is it healthy? Is it sustainable? I worry that we might be breeding like the next generation. Like when we have kids, like what are they going to be exposed to? You know? I I don't know. Like I I wish I had the answer, but Mm. I'm for the most part, I feel, I I wouldn't say that I, I, I wouldn't, phrase it from a perspective of of uh, self-praise, but I would just say, like, I think the decisions that I made or the missteps or the steps that I took have gotten me here. And I think I'm in a a relatively good place. Like, I really hope Enduo continues to succeed. It's, like, it's something I'm so passionate about. It's, like, our baby. And we really put, like, our soul into it, you know? There's moments where we can't even afford... Um, a trip as a brand, but we do it anyway because it's like, you feel like a very protective parent trying, trying to give this thing that you've created all the, the tools and the ability to one day to succeed, to succeed exactly to thrive in the wild. And, you know, I'm so proud to be working with someone like Sonam Kapoor, for example, which is like has become such a huge part of my business and a, a big focal point for me. And I really want to see her, you know, sixty, and we share very similar values. We were raised in a very similar way, and so it's been a very natural progression as well to like develop a friendship with her. And then we're working on some really big things. If the pandemic ever decides to lift, we can um, go back to like the table and, and carry out these um, these benchmarks that these we've planned yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm glad for those weepy nights I'm glad for all the times I felt lonely I'm glad for someone kind of tearing me down with their eyeballs because today like I could care less I cry less because of it I've learned more I'm, I'm you know a, a bit wiser when it comes to navigating my relationships and my work and hopefully um yeah it, it just is an upwards and onwards trajectory I hope so
0: i'm happy to hear that
1: yeah
0: thank you so much Anam. thanks oh, for sharing thanks, my love. Your, events, your journey your thoughts good, good luck time. editing this <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you thank yeah. you so much
1: likewise my love take care
0: thanks for listening today if you're not familiar with goodness head to www.goodness.me to access the online platform and articles and follow us at goodness on instagram If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and share it and we'll see you next week.